The History Show with Kieran Doyle on West Cork FM. It's four o'clock on the 28th of November, 1920. Tom Barry and his flying column lay in the wet, cold ditches of Kilmichael, waiting tensely for the arrival of the Essex Regiment of the Auxiliaries. A fearsome foe. What's about to happen will change the face of the War of Independence. What's about to happen is the destruction of an auxiliary unit. 16 lay dead, one escaped, but was later to be killed not far from the site. A massive turning point in the War of Independence, chiefly because it changed the way the IRA were perceived by the British. Will there be peace or war? And it was have a knock-on effect in the following months that brought world attention to the conflict in West Cork. This is the story of Kilmichael. So, I suppose, having been, how would you say, at the very end of that era, was lucky enough to be at a young, a young person. Those people kind of took a liking to me because many, many persons had come to them to interview them. People that were writing books, people that were doing different uh, uh, stuff for televisions and that sort of thing and they actually never really opened up to them but I being a young person from the area my grandfather they knew was involved in the aftermath of it so um, they probably opened up that bit more to me because they probably thought that it wasn't going any further uh, even at the same time they used to often say to Dini Sheen you'll be able to tell the story when we're dead and gone Today we'll walk with ghosts as Denny Healy retraces the very footsteps of the men of Kilmichael on that fateful day. Dinny begins in his own home near Kilmichael as we go through a series of events and accounts of what happened on the 28th of November 1920. They didn't know what they were going into. They weren't soldiers. Most of them were carpenters, a few carpenters, John Masons. Most of them were farming labourers, farmers. Um, very, very little business person in the Metz. Um, so you, 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 you fill it most of your fillers, yeah. Uh, one, some one or two bad some bit of experience in the First World War. Um, other than that, there wasn't that much more experience there. They were just wanted uh, this. And, and again, Kinmoy is pure clean history, just purely for the struggle of freedom. There was no politics or anything at that stage in it. That morning, in Denny's kitchen, a group of people with interests and background with Kilmichael gathered together. I managed to catch up with Sean Collins and his son, Richard. Sean's mother remembers the very night that Kilmichael was planned in her parents' kitchen. I'm sitting next to here, Sean Collins, is that Collins right? Sean Collins from and Sean, what's your connection with the whole Kilmichael and Tom Barry? Well, I, I suppose um, because the ambush was actually planned inside our house in Kinadon. And as a young girl, she remember um, 
the Camry Bay coming with with its own, I suppose its own troops, and they're having maps and things under their arms, and uh, going down the parlour and planning the ambush. And they stayed in that house that night because it was classed as a safe house. And uh, she remembered the morning um, as a young girl holding up the mirror to Tommy Barry and he's shaving himself inside the house. And the memory she had of, uh, for us when we were growing up, she was probably maybe, uh, from, from memory, about 10 to 12 years old. And she can remember s- sitting above at the very top of the stairs, looking down on the... The, the kitchen table and they were all around that kitchen table planning their little ambush it was not little but that's, that was the goings on that time she could remember that distinctly today no when we'll be doing the tour there they will, they will um, talk about the where Connie Cather or my father's um, first cousin and we'll say Neil is caught where he was where he um, where he lived just there at, at, uh, on the edge of the road and he was involved he was possibly one of the scouts oh, he was one of the scouts yeah. the Cotters was a scout Cotters yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. and what a morning we had we depart from Dinny's house in convoy and make our way to the starting point up to the gear and near McCroom where the old road where the auxiliaries travelled to get to Kilmichael that day at our back here the main road from Kilmichael Parish ran all the way here along and down through the Guerra, if you were ever travelling the road, the road from McCroom to Dinmanway, on your left hand side you'll see the old eyes of the bridges. And that was the main route that people from the southern side of the parish used to travel to the town of McCroom doing their shopping, um, naturally fair days and whatever reason they had to, to visit the town. So um, that is why we are here today, uh, because this is the route that was used by the auxiliaries on the 28th of November 1920. Historians for nearly a hundred years have been dissecting, discussing and debating what happened in Kilmichael. The Bureau of Military History and the IRA Pension Claim Reports give first-hand accounts of events of that night that any curious historian can check online. Tom Barry in his book Guerrilla Days dedicates a chapter to this most significant ambush. Dozens of books have emerged since, analysing the forensics, questioning the narrative and poring over the many conspiracy theories about the false surrender. Dinny Healy cuts through all this and gives us an account of what he heard as a youngster growing up. We're here at the ambush site itself and uh, to explain to you, um, the site was picked by Barry um, of one of the best locations for to to engage in the ambush against the auxiliaries. Now, when he was planning the ambush, um, he actually had to come out of his own division, the West Cork Division, into the Mid Cork Division. So the ambush was actually fought in the Mid Cork Division. Arriving here uh, at the site, he did not march directly into the site. He actually marched north of it because he wanted to take, take up positions on the northern side for the very reason, uh, for fear there was any uh, information um, sort of being disclosed or for fear there was any leaks in, in, in some of his planning. Uh, at that time there was an awful lot of spies around so he had to be careful. So they actually marched in north of the ambush about near a, a quarter of a mile north of the road uh, and he took up positions from the Mokroom side. Or some of the people would actually be travelling down this laneway here and near way to Johnstone Mass from the, the we said the 
eastern side of the parish from carrying by in that area. So he made a number of people that were going to mass. The people from that side continued to mass, but anybody that was going through the site, he asked them see would they go back. And I have a man in record, Tim Cotter, he was about 14 or 15 years of age walking to mass because there was a big family of them there. They all couldn't go on the horse and trap, so the oldest of the family used to have to walk the mess. So Tim actually met Barry here in this lane and he told him he'd rather for him to go back. So Tim went back, actually back to my home place where himself and my granduncle went hunting for the, the remainder of the sun, that Sunday evening. And um, Barry himself decided that he'd stand on the road and uh, dressed in a military type uniform to slow down the auxiliaries as they came into them. He had the second, uh, so, uh, the, where he had the second uh, number two uh, was at just behind the ambush site itself and around that area and number three was here across the road. They were the positions they actually, the men actually fought from. Um, it was a very winterish day, uh, travelling by road and by field and by mesh and rough carrying until they arrived here sometime about seven or half a seven. Um, now Tim Connell was one of the men that fought from this point here and Tim Connell told me that they're closed dry three times that the, that from once they left, left their hand till the ambush was over they're closed dry three times. So that'll tell you the type of day it was. Uh, during the course of the day this woman up here in the house, you know whose house, brought him a cup of tea somewhere around <coughs> half his two or that way in the day, brought him down a couple of buckets of tea and whatever bit of bread and things she had. Naturally there was up to 40 men here so um, there, there's no way that uh, they, they all had enough so you could say they were equally hungry here as well between uh, being cold and, and, and probably having not very little to eat anyway on the day. The original scout would have been on top of the batteries which we had gone through. He, he was um, uh, sending the signal to the scout here as the lorries were at such a position along that road and the minute the signal got here every man had to be in position in the, in the right position. So as the, the <coughs> when they were marching here then in the morning then Barry and if uh, one of the volunteers by the name of Sonny Dave Crowley uh, had argument over what way they'd slow down the lorries. And I think most books tells us that how, as the lorry approached Tom Barry um, dressed in military forum, he dropped a mill bomb towards somewhere around the front of the lorry. Um, <clears throat> well, what I was led to believe is that that made me not be altogether true. Yes, the mill bomb was thrown, of course, but as the lorry approached Barry, and he's standing here on the road in military uniform, naturally the lorry slowed down as was approaching him because they didn't know what was happening. And the more true story of it would be a single shot rang out and all hell broke loose. So it do seem to me that the driver of the lorry was shot from inside the ditch here um, by, uh, I'd say, Sonny Dave Crowley. He was a, a very good marksman. I think he was training in that line of the volunteers anyway. He shot the driver of the lorry. The lorry veered slightly to the left and then the mill bomb was thrown. Now, why I say that is, when you go into research it is, you'll find that there's an, a, a lot of the bodies, nearly everybody, was after leaving that lorry. 
and I'm led to believe that if there was a mill bomb thrown that the, what would be inside in that lorry wouldn't they, they wouldn't have time to get out of it the lorry would be blown up so an awful lot of them bodies actually it was a gun to gun battle fought here between the road and the laneway here now um, <clears throat> that was the first lorry it was over and it sent a matter of minutes like the second lorry came into contingent at about where the monument is uh, when Guthrie see what was after happening, he done a U-turn on the road, managed to turn the lorry, and if you go into the Cork Examiner archives about two or three days after the, the King Michael ambush, look up the Cork Examiner archives, and the left, uh, you'll see the lorry in a photograph, and the left-hand side, the left-hand uh, um, driver's wheel actually deep in the, in the dike uh, after failing to reverse out of it. So, that... Uh, that lorry took um, they were able to take shelter then in the offside of the lorry because we said the, the command force weren't able to actually access them directly with, with the rifle fire so th there was actually a battle fought up there but um, when Barry had completed his job here he moved along the road with some of the men from uh, number <laughs> one um, uh, command point um, he moved up along the road, uh, there, there was a slight rock there, some of that rock might have been cut away there, there was a slight rock, they took shelter in the rock, and he claims as they approached the lorries that there was a surrender. But as soon as the surrender happened, he claims that when the auxiliary see them moving up along the road, that they actually fired this way, that they actually uh, reloaded and, and fired towards Barry's men walking up along the road. Now there's an awful lot of controversy about this fast cylinder, but there was definitely the surrender. Now whether the cylinder was re was responsible for the three deaths, maybe that could be de debatable all right. Because with the crossfire, now that the lorry went in the position maybe that they would have liked it to have been, the crossfire might have a lot to play with the with the 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 three deaths as well and the other side of it is you must remember that Guthrie also had left the scene of the, act, the scene of the ambush and that he was after using his rifle um, and what ammunition he had as he left the scene of the, ex, of the ambush so he might also contribute to the, some of the deaths there so uh, there was a false surrender um, whether it was responsible I think that's the thing they should be asking whether was it responsible for the deaths or not, we don't know that and it's very hard to say and it's very hard for anybody to say. But uh, this is what I was being told from Tim Connell that fought in the outside position. He actually covered Barry while Barry left the, the, the road to go in over the fence. He actually kept Barry covered in that manoeuvre. So uh, the ambush lasted somewhere, it didn't last 14 minutes, so it is very hard this most to put an awful lot of history in, in something that only lasted 14 minutes and an awful lot of the volunteers here wouldn't be able to see every part of the action, they'd be able to see the action in front of themselves, but not every part of the action. I think it was only somebody like Barry and Tim Connell that actually left this site here and moved up along the road would have seen most of the action <laughs> on the road anyway. Before the ambush uh, started, he, Barry was, as you know, had trained in different places. He had trained in Ahanan, he had trained back in near Kirtle in the um, um, original training in Clanbogue in Kilbritton. And uh, as I said to you, at the start of the, 
the tour to the year that um, dispatches and things and information would often be late coming or would often be maybe slow down and that sort of thing. But the commercial contingent actually didn't receive a spot their paperwork maybe until a bit later in the day and they actually left their wherever they were and they came on here with a horse and, and trap and as the signals were being given in actual fact the man here was Dennis Kelly John Kelly was authorizing the the signal Barry shouted at him gallop 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 like hell gallop up the lane so they went straight through the side here up the lane to our left and galloped out the southern side of the lane now another thing happened during the day as well which is interesting a little beggar man as we know that were kind of popular enough in those years came from the south and making his way north along Barry confronted him anyway and he certainly wasn't going any further he put him into here behind the, the, the van here by the, the gateway going into the wood there's a sand pit um, where we said the local people used to be collecting dead sand more or less that time for laneways and things and uh, he was actually put in there and covered with phenon uh, and things and I think there was somebody put mind him um, because he was afraid if he went north along that he'd leak information. After the ambush um, was over then they discovered that there was three Kilmichael men. One was actually dead, one was dying and uh, the young DC was shot and wounded badly. Um, so naturally the men, the volunteers, moved to different uh, faraway <coughs> camp at Grand Ur, was where most of them went, but there was also the Newcastle crowd went east to Coffeean. I don't know the name of the place, but there was a safe house east to Coffeean. Tim Connell, together with John Kelly, he was the scoutman, uh, and Anelis Cotter, they actually stayed behind to take up, uh, how would you say, to get the, the people who were injured and the dead sorted out. So they then brought in the local the local uh, volunteers um, from uh, uh, we said the nearby areas here who who should have been Nellis Keller, my grandfather, and naturally a few more as well um, to help out on uh, removing the dead to a safe house and and uh, uh, how would you say the, getting the priest and doctor for the injured and that sort of thing. So. Um, from there on then it began to materialise that uh, everybody had to get out of here. So they uh, removed south the road with the uh, was a safe house away on top of the hill where uh, the two dead men were laid out in the little car house on the horse car and DC was taken into the house and looked after inside in front of the fire until he died until about quarter past ten that night. Um, he then was brought out and laid out in the hot car as well. They then made up uh, mock coffins for them, removed them down to the bog in the bottom of the land where they were buried or brought, uh, brought the coffins by, uh, uh, for them to be uh, taken up and re-coffined and buried in, in Castletown. I think it was Thursday night, dawning Friday morning when they were buried in Castletown. So their grave is in Castletown, the three graves, McCarthy, Sullivan and DC, and there's also many, Demet many who died later on the following <coughs> year, I think, uh, another volunteer buried alongside them. So that was more or less what happened here. There's, there's very little you can actually tell about the ambush itself because it happened so quick, naturally. Um, but Barry hadn't warned it was either, uh, uh, if, if they were caught here, it was dead. 
emphasizes getting or get out so on the two there was no return there was no back and you can see from the surrounding countryside that um, the only bit of escape they had is to go back into the rough terrain. That is why so then of course that Barry brought in local people to know the safe houses and the rough terrain of the land. So if anything did go wrong. So that was what more or less happened. Now the following morning then when they came out, how did they how did the auxiliaries know where they were? Naturally when they were after returning to the town of McCroom, um, they knew late that night that there was something wrong. And there was a man by the name of Ford, he actually drove a hackney car for Williams's hotel, that was the Cashel Hotel now in McCroom. They had a hackney car and he was driving the hackney car for them. So he was taking a councillor officer to the Manway and as he actually came on the ambassade, he was Kelleher from McCroom, I think local, the, later became the main Ford dealer in McCroom, Kelleher's garage. So um, he actually came upon the, the the ambush and naturally when he went back to McCroom he uh, gave the information inside that such a thing was after happening. So the following morning they brought out an engineer, a military engineer, to map the, more or less where the bodies were. But Kelleher claims that they had to take some of the bodies off the road, to drag them slightly off the road for to get through um, the Hackney car that night. So the bodies may not be where they were, uh, where they were marked, mightn't be exactly where they fell. Now there are different rumours about what type of an ambush it was, uh, but I suppose it's fair to say that uh, it was, um, was uh, mainly a gun battle, but maybe with a little bit more, with it ammunition was scarce, I suppose, and uh, indeed I'd say they had no scruples wearing it either, maybe. So, um, so there's little more I suppose I have to say about it that's more or less what I was being told about it as I grew up around the place um, it caused a lot of hassle around the place it caused a lot of hardship around the place the, that morning when they came out to collect the bodies they went up here to Timmy Murray she was a widow woman Timmy was about 13 years I have him in tape as well he was about 13 years they went up for the horse to bring out there was some few bodies inside here in the mesh to bring out the bodies in the drain the horse um, so she pleaded with them not to burn the house so they made a, an agreement with her if she'd give them the horse they wouldn't burn the house so when they were finished with the horse I think they turned the horse up the lane and a uh, few rifle shots into the ground and blew the gravel off and the horses uh, behind to send them home that's the way they sent the horse home so Timmy tells on, on the interview I had with him tells about um, tackling the horse for the auxiliaries and having to stand up in, in the stepping step that was going up in the, the haggard to tie the hill so they were walking around the yard in arms. Um, they left at Hernan sometime around half is two <laughs> and arrived here around half is seven. They had one stop near coffee and I think where they had some coffee tea and I think washed their faces uh, in a, a kind of a safe house uh, south of coffee. So that's mainly what happened here. Uh, then they discovered then that one auxiliary was uh, survived the night Ford, so he actually went, uh, he was actually died in I think 1980 and 1982, but he ended up in the vegetable. Um You had, uh, as I said, there was three Kilmichael men shot here, uh, Guthrie got away, so you could, there was 16 auxiliary shot dead, one survived and Guthrie shot later that night. So you had uh, um, 
18 auxiliaries altogether involved with somewhere around I think there's 32 men that actually fought here but there would be more than that in the party because uh, you would have scouts and all that sort of thing. Dinny takes us down the road to the Kilmichael pub to where the first reprisal after the Kilmichael ambush took place. Again excuse the sound quality as the speed of cars going by plus the high winds made it difficult sometimes to hear. Yeah, continue on on our tour now. So we're just after turning off the main road that the auxiliaries took, as I said, on their way to Kilmichael. Here to our right, we are at here at Drumlee School. Uh, there was a woman lived close here to the school by the name of Mary O'Maney, and uh, she remembered hearing Guthrie passing down that evening. Come, you could nearly say, <coughs> wet duskish going down. Beyond her own place, she said she heard the hard-nailed boots in the road. I have a book at home that she can have a look at when we go back to the house. Now, he didn't actually go down to the cross. He actually went in here just below the, the, the old entrance into the school where the van is parked below. And he went on down what we call to the lower bridge. He didn't go through the cross for his own safety, as possible like. That Monday morning when the auxiliaries came out looking for their dead. The man here below in this house, there was a pub and post office there. And uh, at that time, the post office people were being paid by the British. And they were under an obligation to more or less bring to notice anything that would be happening in the line of movement, volunteer movement around the area. So naturally, he was the f their first port of call. And when they went into him, they asked him, what did he know about the ambush or how come that he hadn't any information on it? So uh, on the, when they were returning down, um, they actually went back in, collected him and I think made him walk in barefoot after the bodies when they were taking him into town. So that was the man that lived here in, in the, the post office at that time. Um, now, if you look below in front of the, the pub, You'll see a little pack up there. There was a um, man shot the following morning, it says. But as far as I can gather, it was actually two the second morning after the ambush. But nevertheless, anyway, we won't change what people have done. They actually put up a plaque to this man that was shot here at the cross. And what happened was, this man was returning from, from uh, the lower side of the parish, coming up here to the merchants, to the man at the post office, for a bag of flour with a horse and car and he met a person walking up the road happened to have another pub in the Johnstone the other side of the parish that pub was actually closed now um, Molly Hurley was her name and the man was inside actually drinking his stout when the auxiliaries came in and they asked the barwoman see that they know this man and she said she never before seen him or passed some comment that way they took him outside the wall I took him outside across the road and shot him, we wa just walked down there, shot him at the bridge um, and he would have been the first reprisal for Kilmichael ambush. He was Sullivan and he's buried in the old graveyard east in Kilmichael just inside the wall about two or three graves in from the, the wall. So he was actually the first reprisal for the, the, the Kilmichael ambush. So that's what happened on the, the following Monday morning. He came in. He was inside drinking the medium. 
in them returning. Now, I'm not sure whether it was the day after the ambush or the second day. I thought it was after the ambush, but some other people said it was the day after the ambush. He was a farm labourer and that's why he was coming. He was coming up for a bag of flour when he met the woman. She was coming from Ochrome. He gave her a spin. She went into the bar to pay for her, her drink for him and that's what happened. So there you have it folks. Dinny Healy's first account of what happened to Kill Michael. A fascinating day out. Unfortunately, with the speed of cars that whiz by Kill Michael, unknowing of the significance of it, the sound quality at times was poor. But hopefully you were able to capture what Dinny was getting across. I intend to look at Lieutenant Guthrie's escape, but I would have to examine that closely as there was a lot of wind and again noise. But hopefully, if all well and good, I will bring that to you in part two. Till next time, take care. Thank you.